would like to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 1. We're taking a break from our series in Hebrews as we consider the meaning of Advent this week and next. So today is Matthew chapter 1, and uh, I'll catch some flack from Nathan for this, but uh, we're going to be in Matthew 1, 1 to 25. Uh, The bulletin and everything so nicely organized as 18 through 25, and we'll spend the bulk of our time there, but I'd be remiss if if I missed the, the first 17 verses there. So Matthew chapter 1. Christmas, Christmas is a, a polarizing time. You may not think of Christmas that way, but it is. Uh, you know, you're on, on one camp, you say happy holidays. You're in another camp, you say Merry Christmas, right? Um, you're in one camp, right? Tur- Thanksgiving's done, right? You don't have to have turkey. So, right, you can have turkey or you can have ham. And it shows the kind of person that you are. And, and, you know, Christmas is especially polarizing uh, because we all have our favorite songs, right? Our favorite Christmas songs. One of mine is, is Oh Holy Night, it's, it's wonderful. But here's where it becomes really polarizing is what, what are the least favorite songs? Like, what are, what are, like, what is the worst Christmas song? Songs we love to hate, that are fun to hate. So here's a list of these controversial polarizing songs. Santa Baby, Eartha Kitt has a great voice. I-, I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. You know, it wasn't until recently that I finally realized with relief that Mommy was not having an affair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Last Christmas, right, I-, I gave you my heart. You next day you gave it away this year. I'll give it to someone special, and and I'm just like, didn't you think last year that that someone was special? (laughs) Learn your lesson. Little drummer boy, Christmas shoes. Uh, Yeah. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. One song that I find increasingly funny through the years because of kind of how creepy it is, is Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Who doesn't love a cosmic policeman who loves legalism? (laughs) Right? Yeah, in this, he sees you when you're sleeping, and he knows knows when you're awake. A pharisaical policeman who watches you at all times to make sure you're up to scratch. And you can't cry either. (laughs) Santa can stay at the North Pole. (laughs) It's funny, the song is funny to me because we just can't help but create this this image of God to be like Santa Claus, right? Isn't our, our cultural imagination of God to be an old man, white beard, up in space, rewarding those who are extra good but just waiting for you to mess up. Advent is about the fact that that image is bogus. God does not check a list, and he's not checking a list to find out who's naughty and who's nice. He's not a distant, cosmic policeman. 
He's no Pharisee. He's not too distant or too big to get involved with your really ugly, nasty struggles. Advent is all about the fact that God wants to be close. As much as there is in your life that you would want to push him away, that you try to push him away, that you give him enough reason to be away, you cannot push this God away. We don't have to perform a ceremony or a ritual or offer anything to get God to notice us. We don't have to manipulate him or convince him because before we ever think about crying out to him, God has already started to move toward us. Christmas is about Advent, and Advent means a revealing, the revealing of a God who is close. It reveals the heart of God who truly does want to be close to and among his people forever, and he does whatever is necessary to make that happen. This is about a not holding back God, a God who doesn't stop halfway. This is about Emmanuel, God with us. At his heart, God longs to be with us, with you. And today, we will see in our passage three ways how he is truly God with us. So let's read Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. First, Emmanuel means God pursues his people. God pursues his people. So in two, three weeks, give or take, we're all, most of us, most of us, will start a Bible reading plan, and we're going to start with Matthew. Most Bible plans, you're going to have one reading, in, in Matthew at least, sit down, really excited, your dopamine's high, you're motivated to read your Bible, and wham, there awaits you a genealogy. We don't have much to do with genealogy, so when we read, we, we kind of breeze through them until we can get to the good stuff again. The truth is, in his sovereign care and preservation of his word, God saw fit that this was how the New Testament was going to introduce the message of his son. And it's on us to figure out why. This genealogy is doing a number of things, and it is important for this later text, 18 through 25. So at its most basic level, this genealogy and, and others record salvation history. So what they do is they say, this event is connected to that event. Pretty simple. On another level, this, this particular genealogy is connecting this important story, what's happening to the Old Testament. So the Hebrew Bible, the books of the Bible are rearranged a little bit differently than ours. Not a huge uh, difference there. But what's interesting is that it actually ends with Second Chronicles. This genealogy then functions to pick up where Second Chronicles left off. It's, you know, it's, this genealogy kind of functions, functions as, a, um, a, as previously seen, right? Except the to be continued was 400 years ago. So you need a refresher, right? The two, this as previously seen in Second Chronicles. So that's picking up. Still, on another level, this genealogy is functioning to connect Jesus to King David, right? There's lots of Davidic imagery here. The events that are recorded in Matthew that, we're, that you're going to read about are connected to Israelite salvation history, a continuation of that history, and reveal the promised king in the, the line of David. But another thing that I'd like to point out, that I'd like us to consider, is, is the movement or the, the flow of this genealogy. It's divided into three parts, right? You have from Abraham to David. From David to exile, and from exile to now Christ. Each of these parts, how this genealogy is divided uh, of Israel's history, show us something about how God dwelt among his people. From Abraham to David, the movement is from God's nomadic presence to his temple presence. From David to the exile, the movement is from God's temple presence to his departed presence. 
And from the exile, the movement is from God's departed presence to now his personal presence. We read now in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. God now no longer occupies a place, but a person. His, his glory filled the, the temple, the tabernacle, and the temple now his glory fills a person. And what all of this shows, this movement of the genealogy to now Mary, is God's desire and his plan to pursue his people. The, the Bible is not a story about man's pursuit of God, man's pursuit of truth, or man's achieving something. I've had several friends who have left Christianity, and what they have somehow found to replace it with is something that exalts man's achievements, man's knowledge, man's apprehension of things. No, the Bible doesn't show man's achievements but man's flight from God and the Bible is a story about God's relentless pursuit of man and what the genealogy reveals is an escalation right there's an escalation God is moving closer and closer to his people even though you have something as destructive in there as an exile the exile doesn't push God farther away it makes him draw closer When the exile happened, God wasn't finished pursuing his people. He moves closer than he ever has. One of the great tensions of the Old Testament is how a holy God can dwell among a consistently unholy people. Isaiah 59 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation. Between you and your God. God's presence, a presence of life and joy and fruitfulness, is constantly a presence that's provoked into judgment. And, you know, you have uh, popular movies. There's, a, I think, a newer movie about the Exodus that shows God as this child. He's, he's immature and he responds to these things. No, no, the elephant in the, in the room isn't God's presence, it's sin. At the end of the day, if you face judgment and wrath at the hand of God, you have only yourself to blame. And man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. That's what we read in Proverbs chapter 19. But the question remains, how can a God who wants to give life his great eternal desires to give life, how can this God dwell among a people who can only incur death? God will not rest until the tension is rectified. If sin is the problem, then he will do whatever it takes to annihilate it. What Advent means is that God takes it upon himself to move closer to his people. That his presence would no longer be one that provokes judgment, but one that gives life. 
to sinners. He takes it upon himself to pursue us so that we can know the joy and life of his presence. Our hope isn't that our pursuit of God is worth something. Your, your hope is not that you read your Bible enough. You read your Bible faithfully enough. You, you get what you want out of it enough. Your hope isn't that your pursuit of him is going to be enough in the end. Our hope is that he pursues us always and that he will pursue us into his glory. This is the pillow upon which we rest our heads. That God is pursuing us. Pursuing us when we sleep. Pursuing us when we wake up. Pursuing us when we stumble throughout the day. Pursuing us at the end of the day. This is our God whose heart, his very being is revealed in Advent. Second, Emmanuel means God identifies with his people. In ancient literature, they, they didn't have the luxury, right, of, of bolding and, and underlining. or you know, They hadn't thought about, thought about it. So what they wanted to do to emphasize something was to repeat it. And they could repeat it just twice if they wanted to. They could read it, repeat it a bunch of times. That's, you read the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of repetition. And it's, the point is emphasis, emphasis, emphasis. And in this passage, in, in verses 18 to 25, it's, it's announced that the birth of Christ was supernatural. It's announced twice, right? And, and if, in the genealogy, right, it, it functions like every other genealogy that you read in the Old Testament. Uh, this person begat this person, and then this person begat this person. And then you get to Jesus. His, his birth isn't just like, hey, this person begat this person, this person begat this person. No, Matthew slows way down to give us a glimpse into how he was born. So he writes in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Mary was found to be with child from who? No, not from begat, 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 but from the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 20, the angel talking to Joseph, right? Do not fear, take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a remarkable detail. In, in the ancient Greek story called the Iliad, there's a, a great battle going on. Now, you may not have ever read the Iliad. It's a little bit of a challenge to read, but you may have seen the movie Troy, right? Brad Pitt. We all love Brad Pitt. Here he's from here, right? So... Um, that the movie doesn't show, though, right, Brad, you know, in Troy, it doesn't show the gods' involvement in this battle. So if you read the Iliad, each Greek god in the pantheon is vying for their particular hero, giving encouragement or, and strength when they can, and they, they try to undermine the other gods who are favoring the other hero. They, they only favor the strong and the victorious. They, they're not... They're not going to favor the, the, the loser or the weak. And even the gods themselves, right, it, it, they appear in human form. They, they, they don't actually become human. They just appear as human for a moment to give their strength, to give their encouragement, and then they, they're away. What's remarkable about, uh, remarkable about this is that this isn't just God or a God appearing as a human. This is the God becoming human. 
And he's not favoring the powerful or the mighty or even coming in might or power. It's, what's interesting is at this time is Herod is the king of Israel, um, but the genealogy doesn't go to Herod, does it? It goes to Jesus, and he, he chooses to come in the weakness of a young virgin girl. <clears throat> now here's, here's something for you for Christmas. I think we Baptists don't give Mary the credit she deserves. I think if we were to praise her a little bit, we are afraid that we just might pop into a Catholic. <laughs> right? Well, Mary is great. Pow! Whoa, no, I'm Catholic. So we don't want to talk about her, right? It's true, right? We should not venerate her or pray to her, but she does deserve our admiration. She was a young, single Jewish girl in the first century, a century so unlike our own. This was long before Me Too. It was common for young girls to be exploited or taken advantage of. Beyond that, she carried a baby without being fully married or fully consummated marriage, which would have been, brought immense shame upon her and her family. She carried Christ at a great cost to herself. You see, from his conception to the very end of his life, Jesus was with the rabble. He identifies with hurting people, lonely people, forgotten people, broken people, unwanted people, sinful people, can't get it together people. That's one reason why Jesus gets baptized later in life. He doesn't need to be baptized, but he chooses to identify with our desperate neediness. And in this way, Jesus doesn't have to explain to the Father, oh, this is what we're, they're going through. In Christ, God experiences all of it for himself. There is no other God like this. This, this is what makes Christ and Christianity stand apart and above and beyond any other religion in the world. And you might have a friend who says, I know what you're going through, but you still, you don't really believe him. Jesus says, I know and feel what you are in, and I'm in it with you. Jared Wilson wrote a recent book called Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. And he wrote in his book, it means, this means, that in those painfully common times, when we don't particularly feel near to Jesus, He isn't actually far away from us. Our distance from Him doesn't necessitate His distance from us. Even while we may drift day after day further and further away, we still discover that He's always been closer than our next breath. Listen, in Christ... God identifies with you, with all of you, the shameful parts of you, the parts of you that you'd like to keep hidden from him, from others. All that is yours, he takes upon himself because he already took all of you upon himself. 
sometimes when we go through life and, and we're trying to live by faith, we, we feel like we're the ones holding on. Lord, we're, I'm trying to hold on. I'm, I'm looking to you. I'm praying to you. Where are you? Where are you? Right? We're the ones clinging, but we discover that it's never really us that's doing the clinging. At the end, Christ shows us that it was him all along. In the gospel, Christ marries us. What was ours became his, and what was his became ours. The shame is not yours anymore, because Christ was shamed for you. The guilt is not yours, because Christ became guilty for you. In the Advent, God identifies with his people. He identifies with his very naughty people. Lastly, God, Emmanuel means God reigns among his people. In, in chapter 1, from, from verses 1 to 21, we're told four times, almost five, uh, that this child's name is Jesus, right? So verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Uh, and then right even there in verse 17, like the, from deportation to Babylon to the Christ, right? Anyway, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took, this, took place this way. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name, uh, you shall call his name Jesus. So, so it's a little jarring when you're, you're reading, you're like, okay, his name's Jesus, his name's Jesus. And then uh, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, not Jesus, but Emmanuel. Name's supposed to be Jesus. Where does this Emmanuel come from? The fact that Matthew includes this right here and identifies Jesus as Emmanuel should at least give us pause to consider why. What's happening? In fact, just as God saw fit to begin the New Testament with a genealogy, he also saw fit in his sovereignty that this would be the first fulfillment cited in the New Testament. This is the first one. Among all the things that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament of all of our hopes and longings, this is the first fulfillment, that he is the Emmanuel child. Now, there's something interesting about this fulfillment. It's found in Isaiah chapter 7, and that this, this prophecy is, is actually given in the context of a pronouncement of judgment. So you have this king, Ahaz, and he's scared out of his wits that these two kingdoms are going to attack him. And it's not Egypt, and it's not Assyria. It's the two little kingdoms of Syria and northern Israel. And he's shaken at the knees. But... Here's what he's done. He's already made up his mind how he's going to fix this. He's going to ask Assyria for help. So God, in his grace, does something in the, the Bible that he almost never does. And he says, ask me a sign and I will give it to you. Ahaz, in his fake, humble self-righteousness, says, no, I will never put the Lord to the test. It sounds so righteous. But he refuses God's help because he's already made up his mind that he's going to ask Assyria for help. So God says, fine, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. 
and it will reveal that that which you trust in the most for deliverance will turn and devour you. And this sign, this child being born, is part of that. What's happening in Isaiah at at this point is what I mentioned with my first point. The presence of God, which was meant to be a blessing, brought curse and judgment because of sin. It was not supposed to be this way with God's covenant image bearers. This is a tragedy that, that Satan had somehow won the battle. That the God of life, who loves his image bearers more than anything, more than all, could only pronounce judgment on them because of their sin. That God could not fully dwell among his people. What a tragedy. I think this is kind of what C.S. Lewis meant, right, in, uh, with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So here's where all of this gets resolved. How is this prophecy, this strange prophecy in the context of the pronouncement of judgment, how is, does this become blessing In Matthew, the name Emmanuel, God with us, is tied to the name of Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The sign of Emmanuel is fulfilled in Christ to reveal that God has come to remove once for all that obstacle that hinders his rule among his people. Jesus saves from sins. Which means his rule among his people is unbroken, unthreatened, and inseverable. Forever. In the Old Testament, particularly in the covenants, God expresses the purpose of his covenants this way. He says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is called the covenant formula. We read that as a part of our scripture reading today. Everything that God does in salvation is undergirded by his divine passion to see this through. God is not flippant about his rule and he's not flippant about his people. God is divinely passionate about this. And it it, it seems it is. Our world is clamoring for a king. God, give us our political king. Give us our king who will give us comforts and pleasures. We exalt ourselves as king. No one above me or outside of me can tell me who I am or who I am not. But we, we, we're Christians. We're supposed to be different. The, the rule that we live under is supposed to supposed to look different. We, we don't have to clamor. The world is clawing and gnashing its teeth and fighting its way to get to the top of the ladder to get a seat at the table. We don't have to respond that way. Why? Because we lay all of our would-be kings and all of our would-be idols at the feet of him who rules among us. And he really does rule among us. 
There is not an iota nor a particle of your life that strays outside of his rule. Everything, everything from the sound of your alarm this morning to the slow car in front of you on your way to church to the lunch that you eat to your chaos at home this afternoon to when you lay your dead your head down on your pillow to your dreams everything that comes to you is from the hand of a loving father who has planned everything for you you see it is absolutely not true that God won't ever give you more than you can handle. God often gives us more than we can handle. I'm in a Sunday school class right now about parenting, and parenting is something more than we can handle. But it's also true, right, that whatever he does send for you is perfectly planned, perfectly planned and timed with the infinite wisdom that the eternal father sees and knows in an instantaneous moment who does all things for your good in christ there is no list in christ God redeems you fully and finally to the last drop. Your list. The Lord knows we have a list. We know we have a list. We have a past list. We have a present list. We have a future list. Have all been laid upon Christ. Christ never sinned in anger, and yet your anger was laid upon him. Christ never lusted in his heart, but your lust was laid upon him. Your darkness, your unbelief, your doubt, Christ, full of faith, all of it, laid upon him. Your failure as a, a parent, your impatience, Christ died as though he were impatient. Every part of you laid upon Christ. Your list has been evaporated because God the Son took it upon himself. The only thing that's true of you in Christ is that God the Father joyfully lavishes his love and affection on you as if you had all the righteousness of Christ himself. This is the heart of Emmanuel. This is what it means. God with us. Let's pray and respond this morning. Father God, there is not a part of us 
that you are ashamed of, that you do not rule over, that you do not redeem. Our only hope is that you are a God who pursues, who identifies with and reigns among us. Because all the dark corners of our hearts, the parts of our lives that resist your rule, can only be overcome by Emmanuel. And you have given us Emmanuel. You have given us all of Emmanuel and all that Emmanuel means. There is nothing lacking. And our desperate prayer is that you would rule in our hearts by faith. That your spirit would form in us more of the image of Christ. That we would be made more like him. That our hope would be in our king that you would be our God and that we would be your people. Redeem us, O Lord. It's in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing in response to the word of our God? Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What I 